What is evil? It's a tough question. Is evil something like the showrunners of Game of Thrones rushing and fumbling the last season? Is evil something like in Lord of the Rings with Sauron wanting to enslave all the peoples of Middle-earth? Or is evil Hitler murdering millions of Jews mentally ill and disabled to establish a master race? Well, I think in all three of these examples are evil. I think we've had the right idea of evil since the dawn of time. Darkness is evil. Light is good. Light provides us with the ability to read, see each other, and interact with the world around us. Whereas darkness seeks to destroy the light. It seeks to destroy knowledge, each other, and the world around us. These showrunners of Game of Thrones destroyed the light of all the great characters in the series. Sauron was destroying the light of Middle-earth by destroying their ability to learn, interact, and live. And Hitler was destroying the light of our world through killing and extinguishing the lights of millions. What if I told you, every person listening to this is evil. Every person listening has darkness inside of them which constantly tries to suppress the light that lives in you. So, what is this darkness? This darkness that lives in all of us is called resistance. Resistance stands between the life we're living and our unlived life. We all have the power to create light, which are our ideas, dreams, and goals. But resistance is the darkness which stops us from seizing the opportunities to live our unlived life. Resistance's main form comes in self-doubt. If you have an opportunity or an idea for a business, resistance will tell you it's already been done, or someone more qualified will do it. Or if you see an opportunity to innovate, resistance will say you don't know enough, or you're too busy. Resistance is pure darkness. It's stopping you from creating your light. Is trying to stop you from living your unlived life. But resistance doesn't stop there. If you manage to overcome it in that initial stage and you decide to start making progress on your idea, it starts to manifest in your actions. When sitting down to flesh out your business idea, you might suddenly find yourself on YouTube watching random videos. You might suddenly find yourself distracted by TV, social media, or texting friends. You might even suddenly get the urge to eat and find yourself in the kitchen making food. Resistance knows how to distract you from getting stuff done. Once again, resistance is trying to stop you from creating your life. It's trying to keep you in your normal life. Worst of all, resistance from others can ooze in to extinguish your light. If you have an innovative, out there idea, Others might not see its genius, but only see risk and failure. Because of that risk and failure, they will try to stop you from pursuing your light. They will tell you the idea is crazy. They will tell you it will never work. They will tell you to play it safe. Finally, if you follow up on the opportunity to create and take action to create it, resistance will have one more trick up its sleeve. It will throw everything it has at you. 
like the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae, it will make one last stand. But leaders must stand tall. Just like the Spartans who fought in the shade of Xerxes' arrows, leaders must fight in the shade of resistance. To sum it up, resistance is evil. It's darkness. It seeks to destroy your light through stopping you from seizing opportunities. So, what does evil versus good, darkness versus light, have to do with history? Well, let's find out today on this week's episode of Lessons from Transformative Leaders. Light of the Rising Sun. On the night of November 11, 1940, British pilot Kenneth Williamson walked out onto the deck of the carrier Illustrious to board his old, outdated swordfish biplane. He was admiring the old beast. He thought of how dangerous and important his mission would be. The British were in dire straits. The Italian Navy was far superior to the Mediterranean Royal Navy. Something needed to be done, or else the outlook of World War II would look even darker for the British. So Admiral Cunningham ordered the carrier Illustrious to sneak outside the Italian harbor of Taranto and launch an air raid on the Italian fleet stationed there. Nothing like this had ever been done before. Kenneth knew the odds of his survival would be low. He had been told that out of the 20 aircraft, only 10 would come back. But Kenneth boarded his biplane anyways. He was jerked around as he started to skid down the carrier, but soon he was weightless. The dark sky stretched out before him endlessly. But soon the sky was filled with streaks of light. Like a hive of angry bees, the anti-aircraft fire buzzed through the night. Over 101 anti-aircraft and 193 machine guns thundered at the biplanes. But Kenneth held strong. The sky now flashing, he spotted his target. The battleship Conte de Cavour. He dove his plane down perilously low. At some points, he thought his wheels might start skipping the water. Seconds felt like hours as he was flying straight into the hornet's nest. But before he realized it, his torpedo was off. He violently jerked up on his control instruments, but the hornet's nest continued to sting his plane. Eventually, holes riddled his wings, and he started to descend into the void of the Mediterranean. With a thunderous crash, his plane hit the waters, where he now waited to be picked up as a prisoner of war. But while his beloved swordfish started to make its voyage to the bottom of the harbor, there was a silver lining. The sky was not only filled with anti-aircraft fire now. Instead, half of Italy's capital ships were ablaze. Twenty outdated biplanes had just destroyed the most powerful fleet in the Mediterranean in one night. Some 
could see the writing on the walls. Others could not. The age of the battleship was drawing to a close, but the age of the carrier was about to rock the world. One of the few who saw the writing on the wall was Japanese commander-in-chief of the combined fleet, Isoroku Yamamoto. Yamamoto heard about the attack on Taranto, and a light bulb started to flicker above his head. His mind was swirling with, what if, instead of two small carriers, you employed six modern ones? What if instead of using biplanes, you used modern planes, capable of carrying more than one torpedo? Yamamoto started to see an opportunity. His light was starting to shine. But before we can get too deep into Yamamoto, we need to understand Japan a bit. I love the way Dan Carlin describes Japan during the early to mid-20th century. He states that Japan was essentially a juiced-up bodybuilder that was hooked on steroids. Those steroids were foreign colonies, and those colonies' resources. Japan's expansionism eventually caused them to come toe-to-toe with the United States. Yamamoto clearly saw war coming and was distraught. He had studied at Harvard and worked as a naval attaché in the United States. During his studies, he witnessed the seeds of what would eventually grow into an unstoppable industrial might. Terror filled him when he thought of the technology and the science that the Americans possessed. War with America meant doom for Japan. He knew if his island nation poked the sleeping bear that was the United States, it would mean the end for his country. In 1941, tensions were continuing to increase between the United States and Japan. The eventual clash with America was coming. Yamamoto knew it was his responsibility to put Japan in the best possible position to win the war. The current plan was to try to pick off the U.S. Pacific Fleet stationed in Pearl Harbor as they sailed their way across the expanse of the Pacific. While the U.S. sailed, the Japanese would attempt to conquer and hold territory in Pacific Asia. Then, once the U.S. got into Japanese territory, the Japanese wanted to make it so hard to take the objectives that they weren't worth the casualties it would have cost the Americans. But Yamamoto saw an obvious flaw with this current plan. The U.S. Pacific Fleet was already immensely strong. If you waited for war to come to you, America's strength would crash over the island of Japan. It was with this idea in the Battle of Taranto that he saw his opportunity. Yamamoto saw an opportunity to launch an airstrike against the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. With this strike, the United States would be crippled. More than that, he saw that the strike would crush any will to go to war with Japan. Yamamoto's light was burning bright. But the idea both terrified and excited the people around him. The logic behind it was that the strike would demoralize the Americans so much that within six months, they would sue for peace. However, it went against all naval doctrines. 
In the past, carriers were seen as kind of accessories to fleets. They would be defensive and scout the area around the fleet, rather than, as we know today, an offensive weapon. Nevertheless, Yamamoto saw that the Battle of Taranto changed the game. But he wanted to innovate further. Instead of two carriers, he planned to employ six. And instead of 20 biplanes, there could be up to 200 planes. Not only did the attack go against naval doctrine, it also went against the original plan to let the Americans traverse across the seemingly endless Pacific. Instead, Yamamoto wanted to go right into the lion's den and bash it in the head while it slept. But this is where Yamamoto's resistance came in the form of others trying to consume his light. Even though it was a work of innovative genius, Japanese top brass were terrified of the opportunity because of the failure. If one thing went wrong, the operation was over. The plan depended on total surprise. So if this massive fleet was spotted on their way to Hawaii, the plan would be a failure. An American might would be on alert and preparing for war. In addition, refueling posed a massive problem. And to make matters worse, their current torpedoes would need to be re-engineered to not sink extremely low because Pearl Harbor had very shallow waters. There were glaring problems everywhere. The risk was immeasurable. With all their carriers together, it could result in Japan losing everything. Yamamoto knew it, and so did Japanese top brass. They thought it was impossible and needlessly risky, and some suicidal. Satoshi Tomioka, an admiral in the Japanese Navy, sums up Japan's top brass's views on the operation. Quote, In the first place, the idea cut across the grain of all our thinking and planning prior to that time. Secondly, as everyone agreed, it was a plan of tremendous complexity. Thirdly, Japan's fate so completely depended on her fleet that we could not bring ourselves to accept these staggering losses we thought inherent in such an admissible risk. Lastly, we considered the southern operation of such importance that we did not want anything else to jeopardize its success. End quote. They were nervous because they only saw failure, not the potential for success. They saw this venture as crazy and needless since they already had a plan in place. It was a safe plan, but that safety wasn't enough to win the war in the eyes of Yamamoto. He saw the southern operation as a guaranteed slow way for Japan to die. No ordinary plan could be followed. Something radical, something innovative needed to be done. Yet, Yamamoto would ignore the resistance his superiors were trying to force on him. He would push to mitigate the concerns of the operation. But time was running out. He saw that U.S. and Japanese relations were going down the drain. So he charged on with planning and preparation. 
The largest problems he had to solve were surprise, refueling, and the issue with the torpedoes. The first they would solve through taking a northern passage to Hawaii, which avoided all trade routes. But even that still had risk. While it excited them that they would not likely be seen, it still terrified them that if one, one ship would see them, the whole thing would be over before it started. The refueling issue they would fix through stripping down the ships to their bare bones, then cramming fuel wherever they could, ignoring all safety violations. If the ships got hit by anything, they would quickly become balls of fire. Finally, the most complex of the issues facing Aomoto were the torpedoes. Mainly because what they needed simply did not exist. Torpedoes of that time typically sank about 60 meters upon hitting the water. That would not do, since Pearl Harbor had a depth of about 20 meters. So this drained Japanese top engineering minds. But they would overcome the hurdle by attaching a wooden flap to the torpedoes, which stopped them from going too deep. This was probably one of the most terrifying aspects of the plan because they had no idea if Pearl Harbor was actually 20 meters deep. If that was a guess, and it was actually 15 meters deep, the torpedoes would plunge into the muddy depths, and so would the entire operation. If these were answers to Japanese top brass concerns, they did not make them feel any better. The risk still scared Japanese top brass. In their darkness, they rejected Yamamoto's plan. The resistance was strong. Rocks started caving in around Yamamoto's light. He could have easily given in to that sweet darkness. But in the face of all this resistance, he did not give in. With the boulders crashing around him, he stood tall. When the naval general staff told him his plan was a waste. Yamamoto told him it was either the plan or he resigns. To fully understand why this is such a big deal, we need to understand part of Yamamoto's character. He was a duty to country no matter what kind of guy. Going to war with America would be a losing venture, but he ignored that because he thought he owed his country to give it the best possible chance for victory. He would have done anything for Japan, which is what was so surprising about this action. Yamamoto was betting his honor, country, and duty on his light. And the gamble worked. The naval general staff could not lose their commander of the combined fleet before the war. They knew he was the only and the best man to fight the United States. So with something that terrified them more than the Pearl Harbor plan, they relented and approved Yamamoto's attack. Yamamoto had defeated the darkness. With the dark clouds parting, Yamamoto's plan was on. His light was burning bright. At 6 a.m., the Japanese carrier Akagi was buzzing with life. It was the most important day of many men's lives. 
but it was the most important to Mitsuo Fuchida, who was to lead the attack. Fuchida had spent many, many late nights stressing over the attack, but now it was time to put it into action. At around 6 a.m., he was hovering in the air around the carriers. 350 planes swirled in the air. What a glorious sight of Japanese prowess that six carriers and all the ships around it had made it to Hawaii. But he did not dwell on that thought very long. He still had a massive task in front of him. Knock the United States Pacific Fleet out. As this plane rumbled its way towards Hawaii, Fuchida peered through the thick clouds below him, and suddenly he saw surf breaking upon the shore. The hour of the rising sun had come. Meanwhile, Pearl Harbor was fast asleep. Sundays were days to relax, go to church, or play golf. The inhabitants were about to be awoken from their dreamy paradise into a hellish nightmare. As Fuchida peered onto the sleepy harbor, he started counting which ships were in that harbor. To his dismay, none of the U.S. carriers were there that day. But all eight battleships were there. It wasn't exactly what they wanted, but nevertheless, he excitedly gave his order. Tora, 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 he shouted into the Japanese radio. It was a signal that the Americans were caught off guard and that the Japanese had achieved total surprise. Fuchina's bombers immediately started ripping apart the aircrafts in Wheeler and Hickam fields. But Fuchida was in the thick of a bombing run. However, the smoke would be too dense for him to see his lead plane, so they would have to come around again. But when he was coming around for a second try, his plane shook violently. When he looked out the window, he saw a dark column of smoke cutting through the sky. The battleship Arizona had been hit. With renewed courage and inspiration, his group dived again. The pounding of the anti-aircraft fire filled his plane. Nonetheless, he concentrated on his lead bomber. Second by second, crawled by. But suddenly, the lead bomber let loose his arsenal. Fuchida followed suit. He peered through his peephole, watching the bombs get smaller and smaller. His heart was pounding when two smokestacks flashed from the ships. They hid it. Uchida was relieved. He had done his part in Japan's great victory. But while his bombers returned to the carriers, Fuchida stayed above Hawaii to observe the rest of the damage. The second wave consisted of 167 planes. Fuchida would have front row seats to observe the finishing touches on the Rising Sun's victory. Already, Pearl Harbor looked nothing like the paradise he had seen earlier in the morning. Fujita now observed that it was filled with the hellish smoke consuming the air. 
Once the second wave made their contribution to the smoke and the ash, Fujita started his return to the ships. He tallied that eight battleships, three destroyers, four auxiliary boats were sunk or damaged. In addition to the ships, 205 American aircraft were damaged. The Rising Sun won a great victory. The naval world was changed forever. The world was changed forever. All because Yamamoto ignored resistance and seized his opportunity. Now, I bet you're wondering, wait, Japan lost the war. After the war, Pearl Harbor wasn't seen as the initial great victory that it was at the time because it gave the Americans something to rally behind, and the Japanese left most of the actual base of Pearl Harbor intact, including their oil reserves. But most agree, like Yamamoto, that war against the might of America, Britain, China, and Russia, all at the same time, was never winnable. Yet, what we can learn from Yamamoto is the triumph over resistance. With darkness surrounding him at all corners, he managed to build, plan, and execute a wildly innovative attack which changed naval warfare forever. When his superiors tried to smother his light, Yamamoto raged against their efforts. He stood firm. He gambled his honor, country, and duty on his plan. Sometimes it requires a gamble, a risk, to pursue our lights. Yamamoto teaches us to hunt down resistance in our lives so we can start living our unlived lives. I wanted to end today's episode with a poem from Dylan Thomas. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage. Rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in the green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight, and learned too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death, who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage. Rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage. Rage against the dying of the light. Yamamoto did not go gentle into that good night. He raged against resistance from his superiors. He raged against the dying of his light. I challenge you all to not go gentle into resistance. Rage. Rage against the dying of your light. When you start having self-doubt about your ideas or opportunities, know that it's just resistance fighting you and that you need to fight back. Like Yamamoto, don't listen to yourself or people who say your dreams, ideas, or goals are a waste. Go out there and start living 
that unlived life. As always, you can check out the sources for today's episode on Twitter, at LessonsFromTL. In addition, if you enjoyed the show, leave a review on iTunes. Reviews help give me the motivation to continue to work on the show. See you all again in two weeks.